Good friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Horwood. And I'm Max Anderson. And this episode, we're continuing our discussion of Robert W. Chambers' The King in Yellow and delving into some of the mythology and ways that other writers have used it. Before we get into all that cosmic horror, well, actually, we'll debate whether that's cosmic horror, we have news. First up, um, our good friend Evan Dorkin has started a new horror film podcast with his good friend, and this is almost a wonderful piece of... Uh, Synchronicity? Yeah, that's what I was going to say, serendipity. His good friend, Paul Yellowvich. Yay! Perfect name. <laughs> For this show, because <laughs> it's Yellowvich. Yeah, right, yes. okay. Um, it's called Tear Them Apart, and the second episode will be out soon. Yes, yeah, so it'll probably already be out by the time this episode goes out. I've listened to the first episode, and yeah, it's, it's a fun discussion about their background with horror films, their influences, their experiences as being young horror fans. So I really recommend that, and with the second episode, apparently they're going to start focusing on particular genres and groups of films, and the second episode is going to be all about, appropriately enough, giallo. And if one podcast weren't enough, there's another new podcast. James and Lloyd read indie RPG blurbs so you don't have to. With James Mullen and Lloyd GM. Yeah, I listened to the first episode. I mean, they've put out a few now. And yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's a fairly short podcast and it is almost exactly what you'd expect from the name. They make the point that at the moment there are something like 50 indie RPGs coming out per month. What? Yeah, <laughs> that was my reaction. Yeah, well, wow. Okay. I, I mean, th- this includes all the kind of freebies that people are putting up for download and the low-cost ones that people might put on drive-through as well as printed games. And so they're sifting through all the announcements about these myriad games and picking out the ones that look most interesting. For the first episode, they really do just look at the blurbs, but I, I understand from at least what they decided in the first episode that they might be going a bit more in-depth after that. More in-depth than reading the back cover. <laughs> That'll never catch on. And now on to our main topic... The King in Yellow and the Carcosa Mythos. So, yeah, last episode we talked a fair bit about Robert W. Chambers, about the short story collection The King in Yellow, and where all this stuff came from, what actually began all this madness. So this time we're going to build on that to look at what the actual elements of the Carcosa Mythos that Chambers created are. While Call of Cthulhu players may be familiar with The King in Yellow as an avatar of Hasta, it started out as something very different. Many writers have built on the elements created by Chambers, keeping them separate from the Cthulhu mythos. And that's what we'll look at in a subsequent episode, how The King in Yellow and Carcosa were drawn into the Cthulhu mythos, and how this changed them. Well, what are the key elements of the Carcosa mythos? There's a play. (laughs) That's the big one. Yes. But the play has got all sorts of interesting stuff in it. Or at least it's got all sorts of interesting names in it. And this is something we'll probably keep harping on about in this episode. The fact that this entire mythos has been built up by other writers and game designers and so on. Largely built on litanies of names. We see very little definition in chambers. We see very little certainty. We see very little detail. Okay, well, let's start out with the big honcho himself. His name is the name of the book, is the name of the play. He's got to be important. So what do we actually really know about him? Bugger all. Well, we get the description of him as having a a tattered mantle or or tattered robes or sculpt robes. Beyond that, what he's the king of isn't really defined. So that's about all we have, really, just a very vague description. There is one thing that other writers have drawn on, which is this idea that he is a god. And this is sort of hinted at in the stories, because we do have that ending of In the Court of the Dragon, where the king in yellow manifests, appears to the protagonist, and does something horrible to him that isn't really described. And there is that line that the king utters, which is, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Mm -hmm. 
it is almost um, an omnipotent type of power that's demonstrated, or reality warping power at the very least, where it's this one guy has read this one part of this one play, and therefore this character comes for him. That does sound like godlike power. Or alternatively, the protagonist has been so disturbed by what he's read in The King in Yellow, because we know it's cost him sleep, we know that he's been shaken by it, that it becomes a series of symbols for interpreting his own guilt at having committed a murder a while back. So when he starts seeing this pallid form and this creature or whatever, this entity that catches up with him, it's almost like the telltale heart, that this is his guilt made manifest. Mm -hmm. And instead of a beating heart under the floorboard, it's the king in yellow which he just read about in this really upsetting play perhaps it's part that lack of definition that makes him kind of creepy because we don't Mm. really know what he is so that's kind of a bit frightening obviously he's a very powerful thing because well he's the title of the book but not the title of the story And I think this is something we'll see over and over again in these definitions, that we don't know very much about what these elements are, but the little hints that we get are little glimpses into a creepy hole and possibly made all the creepier by the fact that we have to do much of the work in imagining it. Next entry on our list is a double bill, because we have Camilla and Casilda. Yeah, these two women may be related, we're not too sure, but they're in Carcosa. Uh, They're mentioned in The Repairer of Reputations. One of them can sing. Yeah. They're also two of the only three characters who we actually see dialogue from. We see an excerpt from the play at one stage, and it's Camilla Casilda and The Stranger who have dialogue in that. You haven't they didn't stick to one of the uh, cardinal rules of at least what we've come to abide by for (laughs) scenario writing? Characters with the same starting name, or the same starting letter. Mm. And he's not only done that, it's the start and the end. They're both the same. It's interesting because Vincent Starrett wrote a poem in Weird Tales back in 1938, which added to the, the whole Carcosa mythos, called Cordelia's Song, and adds this third character, Cordelia. I mean, what's especially interesting about that is Cordelia is a character from King Lear, one of King Lear's daughters. I do wonder whether the names Casilda and Camilla were perhaps already echoes of that, because they do sound a bit like Cordelia, and perhaps that makes them daughters of the king in the same way that Cordelia is. Perhaps they're daughters of the king in yellow, perhaps they're daughters of the last king, who we'll mention soon. Mm. I was thinking more Ophelia, because no one outcrazes her, to quote quote The Simpsons. (laughs) Then we have the stranger, um, the stranger who appears in the city. I mean, am I right? They appear in the city in the Chambers works? Um, well, it, I don't think it's even given a setting. To. Yeah, it's not inherently stated. It's just that he is a stranger or they are a stranger. We don't really even have a gender for well, them, do we? I'll tell you what, let's, let's just clarify this now. Let's do a quick reading of that particular scene. So this comes out of The Mask, or at least it's the introduction to the Chamber story, The Mask, and it is just a little interchange between three characters. Camilla, you, sir, should unmask. Stranger, indeed. Casilda, indeed, it's time. We all have laid aside disguise but you. Stranger, I wear no mask. Camilla, terrified, aside to Casilda. No mask? No mask! And that is from The King in Yellow, Act 1, Scene 2. So we have two excerpts in Chambers from the play, both of them from Act 1. I think far more interesting to me are the elements that sort of come into the real world, if you like, or appear to at least, such as the Phantom of Truth, who is very fleshed out in the yellow sign. Well, fleshed out as much as as much as <laughs> any of the characters are, but, but, but also um, perhaps. I thought you meant fleshed I was going to say fleshed no, off, given pun. the finger comes Sorry. off. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we see quite a bit of him. The, the young man standing in the courtyard of the church, described as a coffin worm. He's very pale. And this is something Chambers does a lot, is describe people as having very pale skin, very white, very pale. And this is, implies there's something wrong with them. Well, I think it's a very Victorian thing as well. I mean, it's possibly a hangover from the Romantic period, where you have the beauty in death, where you have an ideal of beauty that perhaps comes out of people with tuberculosis. That thinness, that paleness that gives you some kind of ideal of beauty that is rooted in sickness. And whenever people in the story see this person 
After that, it appears they start to have bad dreams. And in the end, he's the one that comes for the yellow sign after they read the play in the story of the yellow sign. And yet he wasn't bothered by someone ripping a finger off. No, well, it appears that he's dead or he's a, he's a walking corpse. Yeah, or at least that character, the, the characters in, in The Yellow Sign associate with The Phantom of Truth. Mm. Again, as with so much in Chambers, we're looking at this through the eyes of characters whose state of mind we can't necessarily trust. So this then becomes a lot more ambiguous. One thing that I was quite taken by was these manifestations we see in the real world, first of all of the King in Yellow in the Court of the Dragon, and then the Phantom of Truth in the Yellow Sign. The role they both play is quite a similar one, Mm. in that they're there as... In the King in Yellow in the Court of the Dragon is more of a vengeful spirit, but in the Yellow Sign... The figure we see there, if it is the Phantom of Truth, seems almost to be a psychopomp. Yeah, a Grim Reaper-type figure he yeah. has come to collect. As we mentioned in our overview of The Repair of Reputations, there is the book The Imperial Dynasties of America, where we have a long list of names thrown at us. It's almost like reading the Shandhouse all over again. <laughs> we have Ahult, Thale, Nertalba, Aldone, a whole list of them. Yeah, these characters we don't really know anything about other than the names. But this hasn't stopped lots of writers and scenario designers and fans just ascribing all sorts of uh, identities and relationships and so on to them. All we really know about these characters from Chambers is they are members of the Imperial Dynasty of Carcosa. And there you have it, the next one being perhaps Carcosa itself. What do we make of that? It's a city. Is it, for a start? I think it's probably fair to assume it is. I can't remember whether it's specifically mentioned as being a city. It is from Beers. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. It is there. When it refers to the King in Yellow play within the Repair of Reputations, the last lines of the first act are of the dim streets of Carcosa. Well, and of course, we've got the introduction to the book itself, Casilda's Song, which makes lots of references to Carcosa. But that just definitely implies, as Matt said, it's a city. Actually, I think the biggest implication that it's a city is that reference to the towers of Carcosa rising behind the moon. Mm. For a start, I mean, that is a really striking image. I think that, more than anything else, indicates what a strange and alien place this is. There are twin suns rising. This is a very alien-sounding place. And not just an alien-sounding place, but one that doesn't seem to obey the laws of physics or the laws of reality that we understand. But if we're just looking at it from the point of view of, of it being a place and of there being towers, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a city. It could be a castle. A bit of a stretch, admittedly, is you could think of it as maybe being a, a region, maybe not as big as a country, but maybe a state. Or it could even be the world upon which this is set. Mm-hmm. And then what of Hasta? Something that's mentioned a few times. We talked before how he took the name, at least, from Beers, from another author. Uh, but the name Hasta does crop up in some of these stories. When it's listed, it's listed as part of a litany of stars, which almost makes it sound like Hasta could be a star in this. And there's the reference of the lakes connecting to Hasta as being one of the examples, which again implies potentially a place. Yes, could be a city. Mm-hmm. And in this strange world, there's no reason why a city couldn't be a star or vice versa. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, the Demoiselle Dis, not part of the Carcosa mythos, but we see Hasta there as a person. So I think it's clear that Chambers just enjoys reusing these names in different ways just to create an air of mystery and of legend with different takes on the same names. Much the same as we've discussed with Lovecraft, how, mm. you know, use a name and then he'll use it in a different context for something else and that reincorporation, but lack of internal consistency breeds mystery and then people try and ascribe some sort of coherence to the whole thing when you can't because it hasn't been made that way yeah ambiguity breeds fear i'm always reminded when i think about things like this of that old aphorism about dissecting jokes uh, or, or at least explaining jokes <laughs> which is you know explaining a joke is like dissecting a frog at the end of it you'll have a better understanding of how the joke works but you also have a dead frog Next on the list, I see Yatil, or Etil, or Itil. However you want to say it. It starts with a Y-H-T. Whatever it is, they want it hidden beneath the robes of the Tattered King forever. That's it. Yep. So, again, it could be a a location, it could be a person. 
Could be a place, could be a thing, could be a whatever! We where have, no where do we see it ill? Yes, in the repair of reputations, we have the scalloped tatters of the king in yellow must hide it ill forever. It could be a concept, it could be some secret, it could be a bit of knowledge. Um, Thinking as we've mentioned it already, you mentioned Christmas Carol before, it almost reminds me that I'm the ghost of Christmas present, the two kids that are hidden under the robes. Oh yeah, yes. You don't get that in the Muppets version. No, no, they cut all the good stuff out. Oh, damn it. The best version. They had Gonzo in it, so it's also not too bad. With a number of these things, we've got other writers who have built upon these. Hmm. I think it might have been James Blish in More Light. Identifies it as uh, the city that Carcosa was at some stage, and Carcosa has, has replaced it or supplanted it. Yeah, isn't it? And some people have got it as... Well, if we start talking about what some people have made things into, then we get into a very deep discussion. But yeah, yeah it's kind of like normally ascribed as being another city, but across the lake as of Harley from Carcosa. Chambers, yeah, Chambers doesn't give us any more to go on really you know there were a few elements that are foremost in my mind from this and the next one the lake of harley being one of them certainly yeah this sometimes foggy rolling mist lake that lies near carcosa i mean am i right in saying this yes when it yeah, comes it... as much to chambers and you know there are the cloud waves that break on the lake and the fact that it's unstirred by wind mm-hmm again a very eerie image we get a mention in the repair of reputations of the name we get i think get a mention in um the yellow sign yeah and we we get this this image that the twin suns sink into the lake of harley Mm. do we take that as metaphor or do the suns actually sink into the lake well if it weren't a dust planet it could be set on tatooine (laughs) (laughs) yes aside from that maybe a you know I'd already envisioned it that Harley was something akin to the Great Lakes of the US. That, yeah, you look at them from orbit and it's a lake, it's got a clear shore all the way around it. But for being up close and personal on the shore, it just stretches to the horizon. It's just a metaphor for the suns sinking over the horizon where the lake happens to be. But you're talking, also talking about a world where the spires of Carcosa can rise behind the moon. Ah, no, some, some architecture in the Great Lakes region is pretty weird. <laughs> Crazy things have happened in Detroit. And we also have the cloudy depths of Demhe. Is this another lake? Potentially another lake, because there is the mention again about connecting lakes between various places. This is also the only reference I can think of that no one else really expands upon. It's certainly not referenced in the Fall of Cthulhu side. One thing I've done, it's playing very much upon all this ambiguity, which is something I very much like, is in my very horribly delayed William Shakespeare's The King in Yellow, I've gone for an interpretation of Carcosa that doesn't use any elements from anything outside Chambers. And so, faced with the idea of whether, say, Haster was a god, a location, a person, whatever, I've generally gone for all of the above. <laughs> they are gods made manifest as places that they have avatars and that you can interact with them in all sorts of different ways that they are embodiments of certain concepts that have taken root like cancers on Carcosa but that's just how we see it in history with myths if we look at the planets Mars you know god of war but a planet if we were looking at that what would you say well is it a god or is it a planet it's, it's like well it's this personification it's a god hanging in space just happens to go around the sun, same as the rest of us. And talking of space, we have other elements. So we have the Hyades and Aldebaran. They're referenced and they're real things. Yeah, Taurus. Um, Again, they're something that you know you picked up from beers. But there's this phrase that we see a couple of times in there. So Castine in The Repair of Reputations believes that part of his power comes from understanding the mystery of the Hyades. And this mm. is a phrase we see again in one of the later stories. Well, you've got the couple there discussing the mystery of the Hyades. It's, again, such an evocative thing. This perhaps secret, this mystery that is hinted at or even spelt out in the play. If we were to use that as a device in our games, what kind of thing would that imply? What would leap to me would be something akin to the music of the spheres, sound or music from space. Yeah, because we do hear the song of the Hyades as well. Mm-hmm. Also, keeping on that theme, we have a reference to Black Stars, which... Again, is a poetic reference. I think we're coming to perhaps a, an answer to a question we asked earlier. Why is Chambers' work still popular and why have so many people drawn upon it? 
is because when you start trying to get into what the various elements are, they're just smoke and mirrors. There isn't any yeah. substance to any of them, really. You can just grab some bits in a miscellaneous bunch and just make some sort of scenario or story out of it and just make them your own. But it, it's more important than... I mean, anyone can write something that's vague and undefined. What Chambers does, which makes these things so powerful, is they are evocative as well. The names have got poetry to them. These absurd images like the spires rising behind the moon. Or in this case, black stars rising. What would that even look like? You're, you're looking up at a night sky, black stars are rising up there, and yet you're somehow aware of them. I don't know, I find really quite an unsettling image. Mm. I'd, I'd always pictured it that instead of it being black, that it was the night time was grey and the black stars stood out shining and twinkling out from a grey background. Yeah, because it's hard to have yeah. black stars against the black background. But on the other hand, I mean, if there was something so strange about these black stars rising, that despite the fact they're black, you could see them against the night sky, or worse, were aware of their presence without necessarily being able to see them. Mm. I don't know, I find that quite a creepy image. Oh, definitely, yeah. And we get various references to the pallid mask, and, you know, masks in general, but certainly the pallid mask. So what's that all about? Yeah, again, it's not really defined. I think it's fairly easy to infer, and most people have, that this is somehow related to that scene that we read a little earlier with Camilla Kisorda and the Stranger, that somehow perhaps the pallid mask is the face of the Stranger, the mask that he's not wearing. There's also the quote from Repair of Reputations. It's embedded in the text, but it does say about the exclamation of the end of Act 1 of not upon us, King, not upon us which they could be referred to as being the mask being placed upon the inhabitants either of Yitil, Carcosa or wherever in the play, the characters that are in the play itself. Yeah, again, this is another example of a phrase that is very evocative. What kind of picture does that paint in your mind? White, featureless, somewhat ghostly, uh, dehumanising. I mean, what it makes me think of is death masks something that was very popular in the 19th century that when someone died you'd uh, take a wax or a plaster impression of their face and make a mask out of it one of the most famous examples of that is actually from Paris and I can't remember exactly when it was but there was a nameless young girl who drowned in the river Seine and her body was recovered and they made a death mask of her and that death mask was used as the template as the face for many many years for Resuscian, the resuscitation doll that you practice CPR on. And so, I mean, every time you do that, you are resuscitating this long-dead, drowned Parisian girl. Hey, necromancy at work. I did actually write a little snippets for Unknown Armies years back that played upon that and, oh, and gave the, yeah. the magical reasons why you might want to do that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, death masks are just really creepy anyway. And the pallid mask makes me think of that. It certainly makes me think of corpses and corpse skins. There's something about it, the image that it puts in my mind, that makes me think of it being waxy and cold hmm. and unpleasant. Yeah, it comes down to the dead flesh of the watchman in the yellow sign. Have either of you ever used the pallid mask in a game? I mean, what would that actually imply to you? I, I've, I've used it. It's a lens by which you could see the truth. Putting it on was not a good idea. In fact, putting it on then involved ripping your face off to get it off. But it allowed you to see the, in inverted commas, truth of what was going on around you, involving lots of dancers, party streamers, entrances to rooms that aren't normally there. It shows you doors that didn't exist before. I sort of think of it in terms of maybe some kind of magical death mask of a way of experiencing or contacting you know, the personality of the person whose mask it was. Some kind of almost necromantic artefact bridging life and death. It's symbolism we see all the way through the King and Yellow stories that they are in many ways gothic stories rather than cosmic horror ones. They very much play around with the imagery of death. You want to combine those with necropants from... Uh, <laughs> yes. From Scandinavia. <laughs> yes, from Iceland. Yeah. yeah, yes. And then we go on to the biggie. The yellow sign, one of the most used aspects of the King in Yellow, perhaps more so than uh, the, the man himself. But we don't ever get a description of what the yellow sign looks like. So various people have done their own interpretations graphically what it looks like. We're going to devote an episode to the story. And obviously that will spend a bit of time talking about what the yellow sign itself is. But suffice it to say that in the stories, it is fairly contradictory, it's fairly creepy, much like everything else. 
I mean, the big thing that comes from the stories, of course, that kind of links them all together is the King in Yellow, the play. And sometimes it's just referred to, oh, I read the King in Yellow, and then it kind of goes on and we can infer that all that we know about the King in Yellow and we know the effects it has from other places. So, like, I think if you just had the mask and you only read that story and he read the King in Yellow, you'd be like, yeah, so what? He read a book. It doesn't really imply that that drove him mad, I don't think, in the mask, does it? No, it doesn't. And, and, you know, it's pretty much the same in Court of the Dragon. But in the light of the other stuff we've read, we're like, ah, we kind of unlocked that mystery a bit. So The King in Yellow flows through all the stories, perhaps more than anything. And it's this play. And again, we've definitely got something to get our hands on here. We've had a lot of undefined descriptions of characters and places that might be gods, might be whatevers. But the play is a play. It's a, it's a book in several stories. That's a consistency. But the contents of the book and what it does to people, this is open to interpretation. We don't necessarily know that much about the play. It's touched upon, obviously, in a few of the stories. There is one particularly big chunk, though, at least one paragraph, of The Repair of Reputations, which sets a fair bit of background to it. I pray God will curse the writer, as the writer has cursed the world with this beautiful, stupendous creation, terrible in its simplicity, irresistible in its truth a world which now trembles before the king in yellow. When the French government seized the translated copies which had just arrived in Paris, London, of course, became eager to read it. It is well known how the book spread like an infectious disease from city to city, from continent to continent, barred out here, confiscated there, denounced by press and pulpit, censured even by the most advanced of literary anarchists. No definite principles had been violated in those wicked pages, no doctrine promulgated, No convictions outraged. It could not be judged by any known standard. Yet, although it was acknowledged that the supreme note of art had been struck in The King in Yellow, all felt that human nature could not bear the strain nor thrive on words which in the essence of purest poison lurked. The very banality and innocence of the first act only allowed the blow to fall afterward with more awful effect. That's why you probably found it so dull reading those sections over Yeah, it's over meant to be dull, right? Well, they're, yeah, but they're it does say it's sort of supreme <laughs> achievement of art, but it does seem like the narrative of the text isn't really what drives us mad. That seems fairly mundane. Yeah. But somehow the cumulative effect of it in some sort of way some of its latches into our brain and sends us into a madness. But it does also seem that it, it wouldn't maybe affect everybody. It seems people who are of a artistic bent are more susceptible well, to no, this. Well, not just those, but people with uh, history of mental illness or some kind of trauma. We see people being affected by it in the Chambers stories. Hildred Castain is very obviously mentally ill even before he encounters the play. And the play becomes the vehicle of his delusions. It becomes the lens through which he sees the world. Mm. We've heard this before. Certain people being susceptible to things sound a lot like those uh, susceptible to the call of Cthulhu. yes. Though I think Lovecraft actually wrote The Call of Cthulhu before he read The King in Yellow. Uh-huh. So I, that, that's parallel development. But yes, yeah, I think you're very much right there. We're also told that the first act is relatively mundane, and that doesn't seem to be the bit that has the effect, or maybe it has a more subtle no, effect. No, I mean, it definitely doesn't have an effect. I mean, that is spelt out in the stories. Because we, we've got that bit where the protagonist, he starts reading it, throws the book down after oh. reading the first act, mm-hmm. and then just catches sight of the opening of Act 2, and that is enough to draw him in and start him. That's know. from Repera. In the yellow sign, a character reads the second act, she may just have opened up at a random page. We're not told yeah. she read it from the start to the middle of Act 2. It's just that it was open at Act 2 and she'd only been reading half an hour. So we don't really know how much of it she read. People have inferred from that that it's a very short book and you can read it in like a really short time. But who knows? Trust me, I would still be reading it in six months if it was me. <laughs> what does the play do? It appears to open people's minds to The King in Yellow, Carcosa, all these sort of strange things one of the nice words i remember that's used in there is that it shows them truth oh that is a very powerful word because that could mean so many things i'm taken though by what you were talking about before paul with you know the cumulative effect of reading them i mean this is something james blish explores in more light so the idea that the you know the words of the play themselves are you know not necessarily um that dangerous, or at least you know, the, the 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 meaning of them isn't the problem. It's almost like a carrier signal brought along underneath them all. 
And that's backed up by the fact that in that quote that Matt read from The Repair of Reputation, it says no definite principles have been violated in those wicked pages. So there's nothing explicit that you can point to to say, oh, you know, that's too lewd or that's too revolutionary or whatever. No, you can't point to a sentence, mm. you know, as a censor does with films and say we've got to take that 10 seconds out. I'm not sure I'd necessarily buy the Blish interpretation whereby it's the cumulative effect of reading all these things because we had that thing where Castaigne throws the book at the fire, catches sight of the first line of Act 2 and is immediately hooked. We have Tessie in the yellow sign opening up the book apparently at random in Chapter 2 and even before she's read the entire thing she's been pulled in and is being affected by it. In the Blish interpretation it's a question of how far you can get into the book reading it from beginning to end before it starts consuming you. And I think these are two very, very different things. The idea in, I think, the King and Yellow stories, the Chambers ones, is there are certain ideas or images or whatever in there which, even in isolation, are dangerous or at least compelling. This isn't an idea that's unique to the King in Yellow. As we saw in the picture of Dorian Gray, there is this idea that a book can be morally corrupting. Mm. Um, and I think this is quite a popular idea at the time. And there's still elements of that around now. I remember years ago when I started reading Crowley. I was visiting my parents up in Scotland. My mother saw a copy of one of Crowley's books sitting on my bedside. And she was absolutely horrified and was convinced that reading Crowley would I not only lead to moral corruption, but would potentially drive me mad. Was she wrong, Scott? <laughs> well, that's, that's debatable. <laughs> she <laughs> was right all along. <laughs> but it's a very powerful idea in fiction. Oh, yeah, obviously there are examples in the real world of people who perhaps have psychosis, who have read the Bible and have picked out elements from the Old Testament yeah. and have believed themselves to be prophets of the Lord, there to enact vengeance upon sinners or whatever. So any book can corrupt in the wrong minds. But I think also there's the implication of, oh, you're reading that book, and it's not necessarily Crowley or whatever, it's, it's, and that book is associated with those things. So if you're reading that, you are going down that path, and I want to stop you going down that path. And I wonder if that is partly in your mother's mind when she sees you're reading that book, or, you know, you're getting into all that stuff. I don't think she thought it through that far. Right. When, I spoke I mean, to, when I spoke to her about it, her thoughts on the subject were muddled. Right. But I can remember my mother-in-law being concerned when she saw us reading uh, Wilson's book about the occult, you know, because it yeah. all pulls into the occult. You know, it's, it's a worry, I yes. guess, for people. Not as bad as Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> <laughs> no, I kept that hidden. <laughs> In the Chamber's stories, we get people who haven't read the book but they've heard of it. They counsel people away from reading it, you know, and they say, I don't want to go mad. I don't want to read that book. So it's got a strong reputation. But um, on the other hand, I mean, this is the 1890s. So, I mean, yes, all right, there's the decadent movement going on, but it was a you know, much more morally restricted time. And ideas of sexuality, of religious blasphemy, etc., would be seen as being potentially dangerous. It's all right, you know, Chambers says specifically that the king in yellow doesn't cross any of those lines. But, you know, it's still this idea that certain things are so beyond the moral norm that they are unacceptable to the wider society, which we don't necessarily see so much today. One thing I, I wanted to you know, ask both of you is, have you ever been seriously affected detrimentally psychologically by a book you've read? I guess I've read stories that have scared me, but I don't think that's what you're talking about. No. So I'd say not that I can think of. Uh, the, the closest I could come to was an irrational, really vehement hatred of one book that I read because I thought it was the, just an insult to be put on paper. But that's not really quite the same thing. No, but that's no. the closest I can think right. of. Yeah. No, because, I, I mean, I've had weird experiences reading some Philip K. Dick books, particularly in my 20s when I was having some psychological problems anyway and I was on drugs that were having detrimental effects and actually making things worse. But I found that... Do you mean the medicinal drugs? Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah, yes. Antidepressants particularly, yeah, yeah. which I was having really bad side effects to. I found that when I was in that state of mind, that certain Philip K. Dick novels, I mean, particularly Martian Time Slip, severely undermined my sense of reality. I was having nightmares about it when I was reading it and it did lead to feelings of derealisation and depersonalisation. 
well, there's very much themes that sort of tie in with Dick's stories. So yeah. I can see that if you were in that mental state you were in, that you'd be very receptive and that would be very powerfully affecting on somebody in that state. But I mean, I guess it's because you were in that state. Could a book, I don't know how to put it, to a rational person, or you yeah. sort of imply you weren't in a rational mind, could a book have that effect? I can see how self-help books or books on philosophy can open your mind in positive ways and have a a reinforcing beneficial effect on people. And I can see how books can be depressing or upsetting or frightening. I guess they can plant ideas in your head. So I guess if you were on the wrong state of mind, maybe reading something like Thomas Ligotti's Conspiracy Against the Human Race, you know, a great antinatalist polemic, which goes on about the futility of life, the futility of uh, human consciousness, and, you know, the pain of existence, the preferability of never having existed at all. If you were in a vulnerable state of mind, something like that might be quite poisonous. But I think that's it. If you're in a vulnerable state of mind, I think if you are in a vulnerable state of mind, there's numerous things you could read that would depress you or... But I think it's like just another straw on the camel's back. It's just putting you in that direction, but only if you're already quite strongly in that direction, I I feel. But, I mean, the characters we see in The King and Yellow who are being affected this way are people who are at moments of stress or moments Mm. of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We've already touched upon James Blish's More Light. One of the things he does in that is he pretty much writes the play, The King in Yellow. Up to um, a point. Yeah, up to a point. One of the revelations towards the end is that he's really just missing the last line. So he's done a lot of work there with extrapolating the little snippets that Chambers has, has put in and turning it into something fuller. And Lynn Carter, in his Fragments of the Tatters of the King, mm. which was a compilation of fragments that were put together as part of the Haston uh, cycle book uh, from Chaosium. They really can drive you mad. <laughs> yes. So, but, but, but we see two people there who are attempting to flesh out these hints and these snippets into something larger. And you mentioned a while back, Matt, that you'd actually bought a copy of the play The King in Yellow. I got two, although one of which is only the title. Probably the more well-known one and the more widespread one is Tom Ring's adaptation, originally published by Armitage House back in 2006. That version is very hard to come by. I do have a copy of it, admittedly, when it arrived from the States. The spine was broken, the pages are somewhat soiled, and I really wish I could get hold of a bit more pristine copy. But you can also find copies that were printed via Lulu as print-on-demand. They were released some years later. I like to think the postman had tried to save you from reading it, (laughs) like trying to destroy it. Yeah, he just gives me this ugly-looking spine on my shelf. But uh, anyway. The other one that's called The King in Yellow, or with the subtitle A Spectral Tragedy, was written by Maurice Bernard, although attributed to, and I'm probably going to butcher the name here, Raymond Lafavre, published by Inkman Press back in 2005. Even though it has the title The King in Yellow, it is essentially a dramatisation of the repair of reputations. Okay. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. It, it is okay. it is that story played out. I guess that's fair enough. It keeps in the uh, the whole using the same name for different purposes. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, there was a version of it that was even performed mm. back in New York City in 2012, The Tattered King by Thomas Tafiro. Does anyone know what happened to the audience there? Have they ever been seen well, again? Well, is that not the one that John Tynes refers to in the introduction to the new believe one so, that's yeah. uh, annotated by Ken Height? Yeah, I think so. I, uh, Height certainly refers to it in the appendices. Right. Because we saw a troupe perform a version of The King in Yellow at Necronomicon a couple of years back. Well, I'm not sure really? if you were there, but oh, I, no, I was no, there I for missed it. that. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. I went to see that. I really rather enjoyed it. Oh, I think it. I missed that. Was, oh, yeah. Tell us about that then. Yeah, that was really, really good. The premise behind it was that it starts off with a theatre trope, uh, theatre troupe trying to put on The King in Yellow, and that they're basically stopped by the police about halfway through, and then stuff starts going a bit weird as they start realising that the theatre around them is the confines of their reality, that characters start going missing, and then the King in Yellow himself arrives on stage at the end of the play. The characters themselves have that moment of self-realisation at the end, the very end of the play when they look behind the mask, that they realise 
they are characters trapped in fiction, that they only exist and they only live for that moment that they are being performed, at which point they fade away into blackness only to be then revived without much of a past memory of their previous performances the next time they come to the stage. You, you know where almost all of that is lifted from? Uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead by Tom Stoppard. Oh, of course. Uh, made into a film some time back, directed by Stoppard, starring Gary Oldman and Tim Roth. And it is a sort of metafictional look at uh, Hamlet. The protagonists in it are Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, who are just roving through the countryside. When they come to introduce themselves, they have scenes where they're using bits of dialogue from Hamlet and interacting with the characters. And then there's all the -the behind-the-scenes stuff. And they're not even sure which one of them is Rosencrantz and which one is Guildenstern. (laughs) But they encounter a group of players who are going to perform the mousetrap for Prince Hamlet and, you know, to, to prick the conscience of the king. The players effectively draw them into this metafictional narrative, the play within the play, where every exit is an entrance somewhere else. It's almost exactly that. This admittedly is going on my maybe slightly Swiss cheese memory, but I'm pretty certain that was the crux of what was behind that version of it. I I really, really enjoyed it when I watched it. It was admittedly an adaptation that they'd performed back in New York, the same troupe. So, so, they ha- so they have been it could be it the same while. one then. I- I'm not sure it is because I know, um, the name, I can't remember the name of the guy off the top of my head, but the name is different. Yes. So I can see that could be quite engaging having it performed on stage with a twist on it. But just as a play, attempting to, to write the whole play as a work to publish, what do we think about that as a goal? No, I I refer back to my comment about dissecting frogs. (laughs) I don't want to be unkind to the people who've done this. I think the best approach is Blish's one, where what Blish is very deliberately trying to do in More Light is demonstrate the futility of trying to write a version of The King in Yellow. Because the whole point of it is that it contains these truths or images or whatever that are maddening, that are too much for the human mind to cope with, or at least expose us to ideas that we aren't necessarily able to cope with. Nothing you write is ever going to have that effect. As a result, the best thing you can do is produce a pale echo of it. Or, in Blish's case, produce a fairly okay-ish play, but then hint that the problem with it is this cumulative effect, this weirdness associated with the, the play itself rather than what it presents. Yeah, it's akin to like the handouts in Call of Cthulhu games of paintings that drive you mad or, yes. or cause sanity rolls for the player characters. You look at them and you're like, well, that doesn't drive me mad. <laughs> or trying to write the Necronomicon or any of these things which are supposed to have this deep psychological effect... I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned the Necronomicon, because I was thinking about the parallel there. I don't think, barring that bit in the Dunwich Horror, that there's necessarily any examples of people in Lovecraft's work being driven mad by reading the Necronomicon. It may, Mm. once they realise the truths of what they've read there, it may have a shocking effect. And that's certainly very much what happens in Armitage's case. But that is not the same thing as The King in Yellow. It's not you read the text and you go mad, or you read the text and and it immediately reshapes your perceptions or does something horrible to you. In that case, it conveys information, and the shock is that later on you might find that that information, which you thought was fantastical, is actually true. But the effect of The King in Yellow is more immediate, more visceral than that. No, I'd agree. It, It is. It is. On this topic, there's always the one person that comes back to me with, I don't want to use the word rant, but definitely, let's say, passionate statement. Joe Pulver, whenever oh, yes. he's been asked about, so what do you think about attempts to uh, to write the play? Waste of time! <laughs> it's He's very, very strongly opinionated that no one can do it, so no one should do it. Yeah, I mean, I think no one should do it is a pretty aggressive statement if you're going to have fun doing it if you like reading the tom ring version or seeing the performances that you talked about we yeah then i mean there's nothing wrong with that it's entertainment and and we as fans and particularly as rpg fans and rpg writers we're pretty much compelled when we encounter something like this to try to bring it to our life to try to extrapolate upon it to turn it into something new and more complete even when that works against the very thing that makes it work in the first place that isn't always a bad thing because it brings people pleasure. It defeats the object of what the whole thing is about in the first place. But if it's fun, fuck it. Uh, I mean, as an individual reader, I mean, I almost feel like it takes away from the King in Yellow stories because, oh, now somebody's written it. And it's like, oh, that kind of takes the mystique out of it mm. for me a bit. I mean, maybe that's, I haven't quite worded that right, but yeah. it's, it's almost subtractive rather than additive for me, having yeah. having read that version. Yeah. 
No, I, I, I agree with I that. I can see some people yeah. might like enjoy it, as you say, Scott, yeah. but... Oh, no, I mean, per- personally. Per- per- personally, I agree with you. Personally, I, I, yeah, mm. I, I don't enjoy that. But that's, you know, that's not the same as me saying that, you know, someone else shouldn't have fun with that. Well, you know, I, I, I reserve that for just for plush Cthulhu. I don't think people should be doing things that I don't enjoy. It's just not right. <laughs> One last question to wrap up this little section then. If the King in Yellow were a real play, I mean, the actual King in Yellow that Chambers refers to, mm. if it did do all these things, if, you know, it really did have all these poisonous truths and beauties, if it were the supreme pinnacle of maddening art, would you want to read it? Take my money now! Hell yeah! <laughs> but only if you could get, like, the deluxe serpent skin bound version. Yeah. Like, I, I think it's yeah. safe to say, Matt, that you buy it, push it on your shelf and never read it. You'd be no, safe. Fuck that. I think this world is shit enough as it is. I want something that reveals what it's I'm really not, like. I, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not saying that you'd, you wouldn't read it because, you know, you, you're, you're too afraid to. I'm saying that it would join the 10,000 unread books on your shelf. Oh, but it'd be the first one on the list to eventually get read when I get a chance. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Paul? Would I read it? Uh, no, probably not. I don't know. No, because I, I tend to shy away from looking at things that I feel would have a bad psychological effect on me. So there are various images on the internet that I've heard about but not sought out. Yeah. So, for example, I mean, on a very grim and serious one, the, the New Zealand shooting recently. You know, I, yeah, same here. I thought yeah. it occurred to me, oh, I could look on the internet for that. But I thought, well, I definitely don't want to do that, partly because... I don't want to give any credit to the guy because I feel that's just what he wants, the, the killer wants, and partly because I think it would be very unsettling to me personally, to upsetting to, to watch. Yeah, I mean, you can't take things out of your head again afterwards. If you see an image that has that kind of effect on you, you can't unsee it. I've just thought of an answer to your question, Scott. American Psycho. Oh, right, OK. Yeah, fantastic book, and I'd probably read it again. But there was certainly a scene in that where the, the, I read the, the, it. The scene with the rat? No, I don't think oh, okay. so. No, it's... That, that's the one that scarred me. Right. Yeah, it's just, I can remember it, it was quite graphic in my mind. And I can remember sort of thinking, it's okay, in a couple of weeks, I'll have, this memory will have dimmed. Um, and it does, because your memory just fortunately dims these things. Otherwise, life would be a lot harder. <laughs> And to answer my own question about would I read the play, I don't know, I might, but I wouldn't want to, if that makes any sense, that if something were capable of unsettling me that much and further undermining my already fairly tenuous grip on reality, then for the, for the same reason as I've never taken any strong psychedelic drugs, I wouldn't want to play Russian roulette with my sanity. On the other hand, I'm not sure that I could avoid the lure of it. I mean, if it promised all these ultimate truths and the supreme note of beauty and art and gave this vision into this other world or whatever it is it's supposed to do, I'm not sure I could resist the temptation. Well, I guess the almost supplementary question is, would you even have it in your house? Because if you had it in your house, the temptation is there and sometimes we feel weaker than others. What happens when the cat knocks it off the shelf and it falls open and you see the words from the second act? yeah you're inviting that almost and when i'm reading a story that i know there's a like a twist at the end and i've got it the page open <laughs> yeah. i can feel my eyes drawn like a magnet to that last page and sometimes i just have to literally cover that with my hand because otherwise i know my eyes just flick across to it and start reading the last couple of lines do anybody else do that i just solved yes. the problem by reading the last page first you're just that is just the Ultimate evil, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas I tear the last page out, burn it and leave it unresolved forever. So everything's Edwin Drood to you. Yes. (laughs) God. (laughs) So next time, we'll be coming back to look at writers who have also joined in this Chambers tradition of the King in Yellow and, and the ways it's manifested in the world in other media, films, and so on. And and also, possibly most importantly, how we'd use these elements in our own game. Because we are, after all, a gaming podcast. Let's let's not lose sight of that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it is time for us to ascend from the mists of the Lake of Harley and offer thanks, well, for a start, for us getting away from Carcosa for a bit, but uh, offer thanks to every one of you who's listening, everyone who's given us money, and a few new people who have given us money. We're not just going to thank these people, we're going to sing to them. 
It's kind of like shooting them in the face as a way of thanks, really, we're, isn't it? We're shooting them in the face with music, Matt. That's another piece of false advertising right there. <laughs> yes, indeed. At the $5 level, first on the bill today, we have thank you to Thomas Powell. Well, thank you very much, Thomas, and, uh, well, enjoy as much as your body will let you. Ew. <laughs> That's a horrible way to put it. Oh, thank you very much, Thomas, and, yeah, um, brace yourself. And we have a new person who's pledged at the $10 level, taking a special grand title. Stephen Vandivander, who has come in at the $10 level of Cthulhu Plushie. Yay! So, so who, whose idea was this pledge level, Paul? I don't know. They're just like some automated system that throws them out, Scott. Yeah, not me. A, a, a big kid did it and ran away. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, regardless of the horrors that Paul has inflicted upon us, we, we are extremely grateful to you, Stephen, and uh, we, we have a special song for you. What's hey. this us thing, monkey boy? It's oh, just what's you this song <laughs> thing? <laughs> <laughs> well, but let's, let's call it a song for argument's sake. Anyway, thank you, Stephen. Thank you very much, Stephen. What, what, what is this? This strange book upon my shelf? No, no, the secret name of, of Stephen Vandivander. No, I, th- throw it into the fire. Throw it into the fire. It's, it's the only safe thing to do. Get rid of it. Oh, no, yes, yes, Vandivander. <laughs> Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Stephen. The king in yellow. No, we, we must. I, I, I can't read such a Thank you. Meanwhile, on social media. Again, poor Mr. Wilder's getting no money out of us. People have been saying good things about us on social media again. Woohoo! In the context of our final episode on the Dunwich Horror, Namtini over on our new subreddit said, So, up on Sentinel Hill, if I was writing it, there would be rolls to see if you hit the thing with the powder, and that would be necessary before you could say the words. Then saying the words would be casting a spell. Add in a dodge roll to prevent being killed before you can do that. Not to mention some sanity checks. I think that would be a pretty decent climax. I agree, Numtini. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds almost too much like combat to me. <laughs> then how would you handle that, Matt? Yeah, I honestly don't know. It makes me want to actually go back and have a look at the adaptation of the Dunwich Horror Story that appears in what was originally Return to Dunwich and then the uh, sort of H.P. Lovecraft's Dunwich, uh, the source books they did for the Lovecraft Country books, because uh, that's in the back of there. Um, but yeah, I'm honestly not sure how I'd handle it. Because me being me, I'm not a fan of combat, so I'd look for some other way of doing it. But yeah, it's, it's a tough one. It's supposed to be like a grand spectacle end piece of a big old uh, big old story. I mean, it's a combat, but they sort of do make it clear you can't kill it just by shooting it with a rifle or whatever. So it's, it's, it is kind of a combat, but it's kind of a magical duel as well. That's because you've got to strangle it with a high-tension wire. That yeah. was a different episode. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd... Yeah. yeah, I'd probably have NPCs do it all while the PCs watch through a telescope from a different hill. That's keeping to the source material. I like it. <laughs> and Norman Beresford over on G Plus says, I'm surprised you didn't mention the visit to Athol stroke Dunwich that takes place in Alan Moore's Providence comic. In fact, I'm more surprised that there hasn't been a courtyard stroke Neonomicon stroke Providence episode. Oh boy. Well, well, I think I'm the only one who's read Providence, which probably goes some way to explaining that. Yeah. Well, I've read The Courtyard. Yeah, that was great. I got partway through Neonomicon, and it's sat on my shelf ever since. Mainly because I haven't got the stomach to get through the rest. Some yeah. unpleasant things, you said. Hell yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, Alan Moore likes pushing buttons, and he, there's one particular thing he does uh, in a number of his comics. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, Alan Moore is one of my favourite writers. Uh, I think he's amazing both as a comics writer and a prose writer. But he does like rape scenes a bit too much. And, yeah, it, it did make Neonomicon a bit, a bit challenging, and also, to some extent, uh, Providence. That particular element aside... I think, yeah, I mean, there is plenty of good stuff, particularly in Providence. Personally, I I think I mentioned it to the two of you before. I think it would certainly warrant an episode because it is a very interesting take on Lovecraft. Also, appropriately enough for this episode, it uses elements of the repair of reputations. Hmm. If it came down to a question of would I want to read it or could I read it, I probably could, but I'm not sure I really want to. I really found it pretty repulsive. To be honest, the Neonomicon this is. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you had that reaction, something like issue five of Providence, I imagine, is going to have pretty much the same effect on you. Yeah, Julie. And over on Facebook, John Hook comments, Damn it, this came way sooner than I thought it would. I wanted to send in an audio clip to celebrate your momentous episode. Happy 150. Here's to 150 more. Well, thank you very much, John. 150 more might be optimistic, but, uh, well, episode 200 will probably be along before we realise it. Well, that's um, only, what, another 150? That's 75 months. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to send us in an audio clip to say happy 156th episode or whatever, I mean, that's fine <laughs> by me, you know. Then just to wrap things up, let's have some final thoughts on the Carcosa Mythos. Do we think the Carcosa Mythos, as presented in the King in Yellow stories, just purely in chambers, do you think this is cosmic horror? Or is it just, you know, like the old gothic stories, but with a bit more window dressing? I'll take door number two, please. Yeah, I really think it's gothic. Elements of cosmic may be as per introduced in some of other authors' interpretation of it, but with Chambers directly just taking the source material, hell no, it's gothic. There's no elements of cosmic horror there whatsoever. Yeah, I tend to agree with you, Matt. I'm, I don't really see the cosmic horror thing. I mean, you could put that in, but it doesn't really feel that's what he's driving at. And also, it's very embedded in the period as well, it seems. The very 1890s. Yes, one of them set in the future, in the 1920s perhaps, but that's still a very weird 1920s. What, what do you think, Scott? Yeah, I pretty much concur with that. There are elements which could be viewed through the lens of cosmic horror, and plenty of writers have, and they've built upon what Chambers did. But, yeah, this element of Carcosa, this potentially alien world, the imagery of this cloud lake and these city spires that rise behind the moon, the twin suns in the sky and black stars overhead, and this entity that brings doom and destruction with it and is pretty well unknowable as it's presented and is all wrapped up in madness i mean these are a lot of elements that we see in cosmic horror in lovecraft and particularly the people who followed in his wake so if you squint really hard it could be but i think the way it functions the stories themselves are very much gothic horror stories yeah the, the, those elements individually hint at cosmic horror but they're just references they're just throwaway lines that don't integrate enough with the wider genre or wider feel of the rest of the stories. But I I wonder whether that actually makes it one of the more successful cosmic horror pieces, because it is that vagueness, it's the hints, the implications, that allow us to picture cosmic truths and cosmic horrors beyond human understanding. Whereas, you know, in the hands of a writer like August Ehrlich, as we'll find out in a later episode... Once you start sort of pinning all these things down and saying, you know, oh, this is what this means and extrapolate this and, oh, yeah, 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 clearly, you know, this behaves this way, then that's not very cosmic. I think if we're summarising, I think, to me, the whole King in Yellow Chambers thing, you know, just his four stories that we discussed, why they've stayed popular and why perhaps they've captured people's imagination, you know, reflecting on on our discussion is perhaps because not just because there's a lot of undefined stuff and a lot of sort of poetic images that capture one's imagination 
if that were all just in one story, I don't think it'd be half as effective. But I think it's because it's mm. in several stories, we're not just seeing one view of something weird. We're seeing a view of it as something weird. And then we're, we're kind of moving around a bit and we're looking at it from a different angle and then we're looking at it from a different angle. So we're, we're getting like multiple views of this same thing and it looks a bit different from different angles. So it just makes it more real to us and more inconsistent and more intriguing but also more of a feel that oh there must be something here because it's in four stories yeah it gives us more context without giving us more definition Mm. which is a bloody good trick yeah i think so we call it the carcosa mythos he's created his own little mythos just with those four stories and one last question having gone back and revisited these stories how much of what you consider to be your image of the king in yellow and Carcosa, how much of what you bring to your gaming or, or just think of in terms of these elements, how much of it actually really comes from the stories? Place names and character names. Everything else is from someone else. It really is that simple. A lot of what I draw upon is by what people have followed after Chambers. How about you, Paul? Uh, well, I think it comes from Chambers, I would have said. And people have added in other stuff. And, you know, when I run some of the supplements that we'll talk about in a future episode, then, yeah, it adds other things in with it. But it doesn't really necessarily affect what Chambers has done. Yeah, I mean, when I sort of think about the King in Yellow, I think of particularly the aspects in the yellow sign. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's difficult because... There are certainly lots of things that have accumulated in my mind, like a lot of the associations with, say, Mask of the Red Death, that I consciously have to untangle from my image of what's in the Chamber stories. Keeping it down to those pure elements is surprisingly hard. When doing William Shakespeare's The King in Yellow, which I really will finish one day, I really will, it was quite difficult to sit down and sort of think, right, what elements am I going to use? How am I going to approach them? And how do I want to make sure that I'm not getting any Lovecraft or Derleth or anyone else in here? It was a, a harder job untangling them in my own mind than I thought it would be. Well, until next time, it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.